Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. We've begun a study of the major themes of this book some time ago. <clears throat> we consider the inspired penmen of Proverbs none other than King Solomon, and we considered him and his unparalleled wisdom. And then we've begun to look at the prologue, the preface to Proverbs here in the first nine verses. We've seen our need for wisdom and fear of the Lord. We saw the primary persons addressed here in verse 4, the young and the naive. Furthermore, the practical purpose of Proverbs that we might receive instruction, etc. And then the precious promise that's offered in Proverbs that we will hear and increase in learning and become men and women of understanding who will receive and acquire wise counsel, that we might understand the Proverbs and the Word of God. And then we've come to consider the pious principle essential to true wisdom. We have no wisdom. Indeed, folly is bound up in our hearts at conception. It begins to be revealed at birth. And we need the wisdom of God. We need the wisdom of of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so that principle here is the fear of the Lord we see in verse 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1 through verse 9. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Well, we answered the question, or at least sought to give some kind of summary consideration to the question, what is the fear of the Lord? And we looked at the fundamental elements of the fear of the Lord. It's, it's bigger than this, but it certainly contains a reverence, a reverence for the majesty of God, realizing who it is with whom we have to do. He is God, and we are not. He is the cre creator. We are the creature. He is the redeemer. We are sinners. He possesses awful and infinite majesty. He has no beginning, and he has no end. And the same one that's one day going to come and judge the living and the dead, even now offers us true wisdom through faith in the person of his son. So the fear of the Lord 
uh, is grounded in reverence for the majesty of God. Furthermore, the fear of the Lord is expressed in filial or childlike, son-like obedience to the revealed will of God. That we follow His will and not our will. We realize that we're ignorant and He is all-wise. We come to Him to reveal what we do not know so that we might live a life of obedience before Him. Thirdly, we saw that the fear of the Lord produces a careful attention to pleasing God. The desire of all who fear God is to please Him, to do what He is pleased in, what He delights in. And the opposite is exactly true as well, that we dread to do anything that offends Him. So our whole desire, whether we eat or we drink or whatsoever we do, we're to do all to the glory of God. Last week we began considering ten privileges which belong to those who fear God. We saw that those who fear the Lord enjoy His abounding, unfailing, fatherly, compassion and covenant love. We looked at various passages, particularly the 103rd Psalm. We saw, secondly, that those who fear the Lord enjoy the company of others who fear God. God-fearers are the best friends of other God-fearers. They enjoy each other's company, mutual stimulating fellowship, iron sharpening, iron kind of encouragement to run in the way of God's commandments. Thirdly, those who fear the Lord may stand boldly for a righteous cause. The righteous are as bold as a lion. Those who fear God have nothing else to fear. Furthermore, Those who fear the Lord find the fear of God a great preservative against sin. We would assume this, would we not? If the fear of God leads us to want to please Him in all things and dread offending Him in any way, what pleases God is righteous behavior. What offends Him is sin. And therefore, we find that the fear of the Lord is a great preservative against sin. And then we noted, fifthly, that those who fear the Lord may be calm. When life seems unfair, we realize that there's a God seated upon the throne of glory who does according to His will in this world. And He is always with His people. And even when things seem that they are unfair, God is working those very things for His people's good. And then we noted that those who fear the Lord are promised God's help and protection. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him to deliver them. Well, this morning we come to consider the last four privileges that I've listed for those that fear the Lord. So, seventhly, those who fear the Lord are promised His instruction and His guidance. Psalm 25 and verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? What is characteristic of a one who fears God? Well, he will instruct him in the way he should choose. We are blind. We don't see down the road very far. In fact, We don't often see our own feet. We 
need clear direction from God. And God promises those who fear Him that He will instruct Him in the way that He should choose. Where we take the principles and the precepts, the positive examples of the Word of God, and we apply them to our providential situation, God grants us a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We sing, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Trusting and obeying is also God's prescription for those who would be taught and led by the Lord. The fear of God, you see, makes us teachable and therefore leadable. We're a child who looks to our Heavenly Father to take us by our quivering hand and to lead us firmly into the pathways of truth and righteousness for His name's sake. If you fear the Lord, you're honest to own your ignorance and to lament your rebellion, that you don't know the way and you often go the wrong way. And so you ask God to give you, Lord, give me big ears that are tuned to the frequency of your word that I might walk in obedience to your revealed will. Give me big ears to hear you. Give me ready feet to follow you. You pray for the wisdom to lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways to acknowledge Him. You might pray this way, Lord, foolishness is bound up in my wayward heart. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your past. That will be your continual prayer. Because no, how, however long we are in the Christian life, we still need God's leadership all the way to our last step, in which our last step leads to glory. The work of God's Spirit in us produces a dependent, childlike disposition in we who are by fallen nature stubborn and independent. Not God's way, but my way. Don't tell me any different than what I'm thinking. And we war against that by the power of reigning grace against this remaining sin that would lead us astray. When we submissively bow our hearts before God as our all-wise Father, and as we obediently bend our will to Him as our loving Lord, as we ask Him to teach us and lead us, we begin to know something of the disposition of a great king who spoke with the heart of a dependent child. The 131st Psalm, David says, O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty. No, I'm cast down, I'm looking down, nor do I involve myself in great matters. He's a king, he's sitting upon the throne, and he approaches God as the great king, as a child. Nor do I involve myself in great matters, or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. I'm, I'm no longer given the breast. I'm weaned. 
Now I'm looking to you. I want to take the breast, but you're going to feed me all good things. You're growing me up. You're ready to, to enable me to walk by your side. See, it's that disposition of dependent, childlike trust, of giving your mind and your heart over to someone who's wiser and more knowledgeable than you, and say, lead me by the hand. That's the disposition. You see, God delights to teach and lead those who display this confessed ignorance and humble dependence. I find most astounding that the greatest king, the king of kings, at whose knee or at, 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 at whose name every knee will one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He bowed his knee in humble resignation to the will of his Father in heaven. You see, Jesus in his humanity is the servant of Jehovah. He came not to do his will, but the will of him who sent him. He is fully and equally God as God. And Isaiah speaks of his submission. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. He who is the light leads God the God-fearing when they walk in darkness. Isaiah speaks of Jesus in Isaiah 50, beginning in verse 4. The Lord God has given me, this is Jesus speaking, the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. I have been taught by my Father, I teach others. He sustains me with his word. I sustain them with my word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. No, he embraced the teaching of his father. Verse 10, who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? That's often the case of God's people. We're walking in darkness. We need light. We don't know. We're standing at the crossroads. What do we do? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on. On his God. That's the disposition of one who fears the Lord, childlike dependent trust about upon one who's greater than ourselves, even the Son of God Himself. Jesus in his humanity demonstrated the depths of his fear of God when he submitted to his Father as a bloody cross loomed ever larger before him upon the horizon. He was not disobedient. He did not turn back. He trusted God and obeyed him when he came to his greatest test in the garden, when he said, not my will, but thine be done. My humanity recoils against what I know is facing me in the future. Darkness is gathering. 
but I must plunge ahead. I must set my face like flint to go all the way. All the way to the cross. Well, God promises to lead those with that spirit who trust and obey because they, by the grace of their Savior, like Him, delight to do His will. This privilege belongs not to the proud, not to the headstrong, but it belongs to the humble and the obedient. You see, the proud are too full of themselves to receive God's instruction. They're too proud to bow to anyone's will but their own. They say not thy way, but my way. In fact, we will not have this man to rule over us. But to those who fear the Lord, they have God's promise. I will instruct you and teach you in the way in which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Solomon says. Those alone receive his instruction and guidance. Notice eighthly, those who fear the Lord are enabled to triumph amidst the severest tests of their faith. The greatest trials of their lives. The fear of God enables them to prevail. The fear of God upholds the faith of God's people in their greatest tests. You remember God's severe trial of Abraham. The Lord commanded Abraham, the father of the faithful, to sacrifice his beloved Isaac, his only son, the son of promise, as a burnt offering on a mountain that he would show him. Son, get up early. It's time to go. Okay. We're going to sacrifice. Here's the sticks and Here's the fire. Where's the lamb? Son, the Lord will provide a lamb. He'll provide a sacrifice. According to the writer of Hebrews, read in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And when he who had received the promises... And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Oh, there's so much here, but we're just focusing upon Abraham and his obedience here. It was he, Abraham, to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Okay. In Isaac, my descendants shall be called. Okay, here am I, a knife is in my hand. I'm to plunge it in to the son of promise. You know, we don't read, we're not going to exegete between the white, you know, white spaces between the letters and the sentences and the words. But you have to wonder about Abraham. Did he have a lump in his throat when he raised his knife? 
His son is tied there as a bundle upon that pile of rocks as the altar in obedience to God. What's going through his mind? Well, we don't know. We can only imagine. But we do know this. We read verse 19. How was he able to be obedient in this great test? He, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. He believed in the resurrection. And if this son is to be the beginning of a people that no man can number, God must have to raise him from the dead because it's not from anybody else in his home that this seed is going to come. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him, that Abraham received him, that is Isaac, back as a type. And of course, this is pregnant with redemptive truth that we don't have time to look at this morning. Well, let me ask you, how is it possible that Abraham could obey God when his command to offer his son plainly not only violated his command to do no murder, but especially his promise to raise up a seed through his son, Isaac, the one he was to put to death. Well, the writer of the Hebrews tells us Abraham believed in the resurrection. If he must Kill Isaac, he believed that God would, that, that he must raise him from the dead and thereby keep his promise. God never lies. But we must ask, what drove Abraham? What enabled Abraham to obey God in this terrible trial of his faith? Well, Moses tells us. Look at Genesis chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Now, did God all of a sudden see that and say, Well, I, I doubted before? No. He saw it. He wanted Abraham to see it. He wants us to see it. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The greatest test of Abraham's life. He was able to pass it by the grace of the fear of God in his life. The angel of the Lord takes note of Abraham's fear, which led to his obedience. Is it any wonder that God is referred to his son as the fear of Isaac? The father of the faithful obeyed God because he feared God, and he feared God because he trusted God, and he trusted God's character, knowing that God would never lie or deceive him, no matter how appearances may appear to the contrary to God's promise. Circumstances may seem to violate the promises of God, where providence 
is one thing, the promise of God is another. How do you reconcile the two when one seems to be at odds with the other? You see, his fear of God enabled him to obey God's command. It didn't begin then. It began when he got up to leave Ur. He moved to a place that God would later show him, not knowing where he was going. And arriving childless in the promised land, yet without a piece of property yet to call his own. He trusted God not just for a home in Canaan, but for what Canaan pictured, something bigger than that. What was typified in Canaan? A city with eternal foundations whose builder and maker is God. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that. We wouldn't know that from Genesis. But we know it from the New Testament. Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac because he entrusted his soul to the Lord many years before when he was childless. He settled the matter then and it was tested later on. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, that is, after Abraham rescued Lot from his captivity amongst the kings, <coughs> after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Or I am your shield and exceeding great reward. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? He's my steward. He's the one that likely would be the heir, but he's not of my family. And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, I'm born to a barren woman. One born in my house is my heir. Now who shall that be? Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And we know he's tried to see that promise fulfilled through Ishmael, but that wasn't God's plan. That just complicated matters. And he, that is God, took him outside and said, and you can imagine out there in the, in the Palestinian darkness, there's no light pollution anywhere. And he tells him to look up in the sky. Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. It would have been horizon to horizon stars for Abraham. And he, that is God, said to him, So shall your descendants be. I don't, have a, I don't have a child. And you're saying that I can't count my descendants? He didn't know how it was going to happen. But look at verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Apostle Paul uses this verse in Romans and Galatians. 
to speak of Abraham as the father of the faithful. And those come to faith, they believe in God. They trust his word, even though they may not understand all the whys and the wherefores. You see, a righteous person need not understand the how to be assured that the Lord will keep his promises. We humbly follow God, walking with one foot labeled trust and the other labeled obey. We trust and obey God when we look in the midst of darkness and believe that he's working all things together for our good. Remember Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, there's the illustration God keeping his promise, so shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God is good for his word. God in His providence will always fulfill His promises regardless of appearances to the contrary. Indeed, walking as God-fearing Christians, we, it means that we will submit our ignorance to His wisdom and our faith to His faithfulness. Indeed, we, when we doubt, we will trust Him, knowing that He who is perfect Perfectly righteous can never do wrong. Brother, let us not doubt, but trust him. The hymn writer puts it this way. Blind belief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. Godly fear enables us to walk confidently in the dark because our eyes are fixed upon him who is the light. Moses, whom God led through a great and terrible wilderness, witnessed awesome things from God. And before Moses sent Israel into the land of promise, he reminded them of God's righteous character and conduct to quell their doubts and to allay their fears. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. The rock. Is there anything more substantial the rock, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. He will never do anything wrong, anything which is contrary to his absolutely perfect righteousness. This is perhaps it's a verse you could put on a 3 by 5 and stick on your refrigerator to remind you of who God is and how He acts. His work is perfect. His ways are just. 
we must neither doubt nor fear as we look toward the future. Brethren, because this God is our God. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Brethren, let us fear the Lord, and in fearing the Lord, trust Him implicitly. The problem is we trust ourselves, and we're unreliable. When have we ever trusted Him and found Him unreliable? Never. We fail ourselves time after time, and He fails us never. You're never the loser for fearing the Lord. No matter how great your test from the Lord, God will uphold you as you look to Him. He's greater than your trial. He sent the trial. He, he's with you in the trial. He'll see you through the trial. He's got your hand in His hand. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. In fact, the Lord promises to bless all who fear Him. Be they giants in the faith like Abraham and Moses, or ordinary folks like you and me. We have this promise, Psalm 115, verse 13. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. Spurgeon observes from this promise that so long as a man fears the Lord, it matters nothing whether he be prince or peasant, patriarch or pauper. God will assuredly bless him. This is a sweet cordial for those who are little in faith and own themselves to be mere babes in the family of grace. This is the same blessing for the least saint as for the greatest. Yea, if anything, the small shall be first. For as the necessity is the more pressing, the supply shall be the more speedy. You parents know of this. Your little children, the ones that are faltering, your hand is there ready, you're following them, you're going to catch them if they begin to fall. You're teaching them to trust you. Like the little boy that the father put up on the fence and he says, I want your son to jump into my arms. But daddy, I'm afraid. Jump, son. And the boy musters up all of his courage and he leans forward. And in one desperate attempt, he flies forward and his father catches him, sweeps him up into his arms. Son, you should not doubt. Now how this is magnified many times over with the Lord. He tells us to trust. And we'll find him trustworthy. Ninthly, those who fear the Lord enjoy confidential communion with him. Psalm 25 and verse 14. The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he will make them know his covenant. God regards as his intimates those who fear him. He unbosoms himself to them and to them alone. He takes them into his confidence. He teaches them precious truths that he doesn't share with the carnal and with the careless. 
So he showed Abraham his plans for him and the future of the gospel in the world through his seed. And so Jesus promises his disciples in John 14 and verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. He takes into his confidence those who fear him. He opens their eyes to behold glorious things. Things that they wouldn't otherwise see if they didn't fear him, walk close to him, depend entirely upon him, trust him implicitly. Jesus delights to reveal more and more of himself to those who fear God and keep his commandments. You see, he entrusts them with the key to the treasury of truth. It's turned by the hand of the fear of God. The wicked have no such promise. Proverbs 3 and verse 32. For the crooked man is an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. God reveals himself intimately with his intimates, those who, who fear him. You probably know such Christians. They're walking before the Lord. They're living up to the light that they have. They may disagree with you on some things, but the things that they know they do by the grace of God. And he opens their eyes to see things that you and I maybe haven't seen yet. Because God is intimate with those who fear Him. Why should He be intimate with those who don't fear Him? Why would He reward their disobedience? God's not like that. For such persons, the Word of God is a living book. It's a feast for their souls. To them, God reveals fresh discoveries of its glorious contents. But not to those who refuse to live by what they learn. Proverbs, or excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. And he that is Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. We know that to whom much is given, much is required. And those to whom God gives much, and they take what they learn and live by it, much more will be given. God unbosoms himself to those who fear him. Brethren, Jesus is under no obligation to reveal himself to carnal and careless professing Christians. Now, I know that such persons may talk much about God and profess to understand his truth, even while they're living in open rebellion to his commandments. They deceive themselves that they are God's covenant people. 
But their God is not the God of the Bible. Instead, it's a deity made in their own image that permits them and encourages them to live godless lives. Psalm 50, verses 16 through 21. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you associate with adulterers. You let your mouth loose in evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silence. You thought that I was just like you. They made a God into their own image. A God that would never reprove them, but a God who would never bless them. Brethren, we prove that we are children of the covenant, not by birth, not by baptism, not by confirmation, but by the new birth, by being confirmed in a state of grace, by the Spirit of God, not by word only, but also by deed and by truth, not just by Christian talk, but by a Christian walk. The carnal Christian is is an imaginary person. He doesn't exist in the pages of, of Scripture as a true Christian. Talk is cheap, but discipleship is costly. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, demonstrated in lives of principled obedience before God. They alone know God and are included in His covenant. James puts it this way, faith without works is dead. Those who walk by faith walk in the fear of God. Any other profession of faith in Christ is a sham. We know that because Jesus will say to me, say to many who called Him Lord, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. And then finally, those who fear the Lord tend to live longer than those who don't. I say, wow, how does this fit in, Pastor Steve? Well, we've been considering privileges of a more spiritual nature, but the fear of God brings blessing to the body as well as to the soul. We find this principle articulated in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Not just prolonged as a people, but prolonged as individuals. You see, originally... The Lord made this promise to the God-fearing among His Old Covenant people as they prepared to enter the Promised Land. But brethren, the general equity of this Old Covenant promise extends to His people under the New Covenant. 
God still grants temporal and material blessing to those who walk in His fear. This principle is articulated in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Matthew Poole comments on Paul's words, his statement, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Poole writes, but godliness which lies in the true worship and service of God out of a true principle of the fear of God and faith in Him, or more generally, holiness of life and obedience to God's commandments, is of universal advantage, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come, not from any meritoriousness in it, but from the free grace of God which He hath annexed to it, not only to the promises of health, peace, and prosperity, and all good things while we live here upon the earth, but also the promise of salvation and eternal happiness when this life shall be determined. Well, brethren, this principle is universal and it's timeless. Obedience to God's commandments always brings blessing, often including a longer life. This principle is true even for non-Christians. Actuaries for insurance companies will tell you that those who engage in risky behavior as a group statistically die sooner than more careful people. And the opposite is likewise true. Those who outwardly obey God's good commandments ordinarily experience His temporal and material blessing, which may include longer life. Now that doesn't mean, don't read into this, that a person who, who catches uh, a, a killing disease, cancer, a heart attack, doesn't mean that they don't fear the Lord. But God's commandments are good for us. Blessing is promised to those who obey Him. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. God said, this principle is true for all men. Paul puts it this way, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. Solomon believed that fearing God is the way of true happiness and prosperity for time and for eternity. You see, as a father who loved God, he longed to see his children enjoy all of God's blessings, both spiritual and material, including longer life that flows from fearing God oftentimes. Proverbs 4 and verse 10 Hear my son and accept my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have directed you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. When you walk, your steps will not be impeded, and if you run, you will not stumble. Proverbs 10 and verse 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, 
but the years of the wicked will be shortened. That's the general principle right there. A couple of concluding words. First, if you desire the Lord's guidance, His grace to triumph in life's trials, intimate communion with Him, and a fulfilled, if not long, life, then fear God. That's what we have seen. Brethren, we owe God fear for who He is. And when we fear Him, doing what He commands of us, He graciously condescends to grant these kind of blessings to those who fear Him. He wants us to be happy for time and for eternity. Now, our full, unfettered happiness is yet to come. But God delights to withhold no good thing to those who walk uprightly. Do you want His guidance? Do you need clear direction from the Lord? Are you facing a difficult trial in which you pray that God would give you the grace to triumph? Do you want intimate communion with Him? Do you want to walk closely with Him? Do you want Him to whisper into your ear things that He doesn't shout from the streets? Do you want to learn those kind of things? Well, the closer we follow Him, the easier it is to hear Him. Do you desire a, a fulfilled life, if not a long life? Then obey His commandments. David writes in the 103rd Psalm, The loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Secondly and finally, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? I'm not saying do you fear Him perfectly? Do you follow Him absolutely faithfully? If you're a true Christian, you sin and you lament your sin. And you bring it before Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But do you lament that you don't run? Do you sometimes limp in the way of God's commandments? Do you sometimes lament the fact that you're your own worst enemy? If you fear the Lord, well, if you do not plead with God to give you a new heart, we can't fear the Lord in the strength of the flesh. It takes the grace of God. We know this. We saw this from a passage last time, and we'll look at it again next time. Jeremiah 32 in verse 40. I will put the fear of me in their hearts, God says, so that they will not turn away from me. And that suggests that the fear of the Lord is lifelong. They won't turn away. They'll live in the fear of God. But God must put it in our hearts. You say, well, Pastor Steve, you're describing a person that, that I don't see myself there. Plead with God. He delights to give His fear to those who come to me, come to Him and say, Lord, I've been an enemy to you. I haven't loved your word. I haven't loved your people. I haven't loved your son. I haven't loved your truth. I've been living in rebellion. 
Lord, give me a new heart. My heart is hard as stone. I need a heart of flesh. My feet are turned away from you. I want you to turn my feet toward you. When I think of the Lord, I don't delight. I'm disgusted. Paul said he was what he was by the grace of God. He says that he was a violent aggressor and a blasphemer. But what happened? On the road to Damascus, God diffused a quickening light from heaven, and he spoke to Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who art thou, Lord? And God revealed himself to him in grace. And he turned the greatest enemy of the people of God into their greatest friend, that one that hated the gospel, the greatest proponent of it, save Jesus Christ, who's ever lived. And there's grace for you, and there's grace for me. Oh, may God speak to us and do a wonderful work within our hearts for which he may gain all the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we bless you for your word. We thank you for the way it rings true in our own hearts that you speak and we cannot deny that what you say is absolutely true. Even if our hearts are rebelling, we know that thus saith the Lord comes from the God of heaven. And we pray that your thus saith the Lord in our lives would not only communicate your will, but would communicate your grace. And you would take rebels like ourselves and you would make them into children of grace. Oh God, do what only you can do in this hour. And we will for the rest of our days and wear out eon unto eon throughout all eternity, praising the name of our God through Jesus Christ by his spirit. For we pray this even now in Jesus' name. Amen.